We were tuned to hear your words this morning, Lord. Take all off anything that's hindering us from hearing your words this morning, Lord. Help us to just focus on you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Russell. We appreciate you driving over this morning and, and bringing us some of that rain. Genesis chapter 33 is where we're going to be. We've been out of Genesis for the last couple of weeks, reflecting on Easter and, and uh, Palm Sunday and, and Good Friday. So we'll be back in, in Genesis now. Uh, so 33 verse 1. Uh, and while you're turning there, let me kind of catch you up because it's, it's been a while. Two weeks, I guess it's not that long, but it's been, we've slept since then. And so uh, we're with Jacob. All of Jacob's life in the Bible is just Jacob wrestling various people and various things. And so it starts when he's in the womb. Him and Esau wrestle each other in the womb. They're fighting, uh, and then they're, they're born. Esau's the oldest. Jacob's the youngest. But he comes out holding onto Jake, uh, Esau's heel. So he's named Jacob, which means heel grabber, kind of like a deceiver, trying to trip somebody up. He wrestles his brother Esau later on to get the birthright from him, having him trade it for a bowl of a stew. And then he wrestles his brother by lying to his dad Isaac, putting on this goat like how hairy is Esau he puts on this goat stuff and they're like yeah that's Esau that's how hairy he is so he wrestles that from him and then it makes Esau so angry so mad that he wants to kill Jacob so the only way that that Esau's anger is soothed against Jacob is this idea of murdering his brother and so Jacob with the help of his mom flees they go he leaves to head up to Uncle Laban and in, in, in Paddan Aram and on the way Jacob has this dream in Bethel about angels that are ascending and that are descending on this staircase that, that's there and we see that that's where heaven meets earth and we even see in the New Testament that Jesus picks up that language and he's like I am now where heaven meets earth and so God covenants with Jacob there I'll, I'll bring you back to this land I'm going to protect you while you're out of the promised land that I will be your God and, and Jacob is, is kind of a, a deceptive he just, just drives me nuts Jacob just drives me nuts He's like, well, if you'll do all of these things, then fine, you can be my God. That's where I believe Jacob was, was saved, because from that point on, what we see Jacob doing is, is wrestling kind of with his old flesh and his new flesh. And, and in Jacob's life, especially at the beginning, the old flesh wins an awful lot. He meets Rachel. He wants to marry Rachel, but Rachel is Laban's daughter, so that's right. So, so Laban and, and Jacob get this agreement. He's going to work seven years, and then he'll marry Rachel. But then the night of their wedding, Uncle Laban swaps Rachel for Leah, his sister. So Jacob accidentally marries Leah instead of Rachel, and, and he's upset, understandably upset. And we see Jacob again wrestling. This time he's wrestling Laban. And up to this point in Jacob's life, he has always been the trickster. He's not been the one getting tricked. But he's met his match with Laban. And so they come up to another agreement where he, you know, finish out the wedding week with Leah. Then we'll have another wedding. You can marry Rachel and you can work seven more years for, for Laban to, to earn Rachel from him. And so uh, he has two wives now. And any time in the Bible somebody has two wives, it never is a good thing. It doesn't go the way that it's supposed to go. But he does this. So seven more years, and, and Jacob favors Rachel, who's his favorite wife. But it's Leah who, who bears all the children. So then in Jacob's life, what we have was this battle of the babies, where, where Leah and Rachel are trying to outdo each other and having children, and, and Rachel can't conceive, but Leah is just popping these babies out like crazy. And so Rachel gives her servant to Jacob to, to impregnate and have kids with. And so then Leah does the same thing with her servant, and then Leah gets pregnant again. And finally, at the very end, Rachel has a son, 
Joseph. And so Rachel and Joseph become Jacob's favorite wife, his favorite son out of all 12. It's a mess. And at the end of 14 years, Jacob's ready to go home. So he approaches Laban and and Laban convinces them to work for him. But now he's going to get a portion of the flock. And so Jacob strikes a deal that's kind of odd on the surface, but if we read into the text a little bit and, and continue passing on, it makes a little bit more sense where Jacob says, I'm gonna, I, I want to own all the odd-colored sheep, all the odd-colored livestock, and you can have the normal-colored ones, which percentage-wise doesn't seem to work in Jacob's favor. But what ends up happening is the Lord blesses Jacob. Jacob does some weird things with some sticks and some water troughs, but he ends up getting a lot of flocks, strong, healthy flocks, grows in wealth, and he grows at the expense of Laban. So six years later, so 20 years with Uncle Laban, uh, six, seven, 14 years working off his wives, and then six more years earning this, this flock. Laban is angry at him. He doesn't like him. There's this tension that's built up between those two. And so finally Jacob says, it's time to just go. And so he gathers his wives, he gathers their servants, he gathers his flock, and he leaves while Laban's off shearing the sheep three days away. And Laban catches him, and they have a heart-to-heart or a head-to-head with these two men, probably. And they strike a covenant, and the covenant is basically, you don't attack me, I won't attack you, take care of my kids, see you later. Gone. Twenty years of wrestling Laban is now at peace for Jacob. And we saw how over time... Jacob's obedience to the Lord wasn't always perfect. In fact, most of the time it was not very good. But there were times the Lord was growing Jacob, was pushing Jacob in the Lord. And so God used those situations to grow Jacob. They used those situations to, to push him to be a better, a more obedient, a more faithful believer of the Lord. And so he's grown in God. But there's this past that Jacob has. Remember why he left Canaan. Esau was angry. And Esau certainly sinned, and so did Isaac, and so did Rebekah, his mom, but so did Jacob. And Jacob recognizes this, and so Jacob has some conviction as he's coming back into the promised land that he has to make this right with Esau. Esau's this looming presence, and he, he can't pretend it doesn't exist. He knows it's there, and it's caused by sin in his life. Sin has a way when we sin, even if it's been 20 years ago, of cropping back up into our lives. And so Jacob is going to deal with this. And so as he enters into the promised land, we got this peak of, of God's camp, where he saw angels in God's camp. And it's interesting, when he's leaving the promised land, he sees angels ascending and descending. When he comes back to the promised land, he sees angels camped there. It's almost as if the promised land is, is what God is saying, is this is my land that's guarded by angels. And if we remember back to the beginning of Genesis, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, the garden was guarded by angels. And so it's as if God is saying, this is a special place right now that I'm, I'm holding. So Jacob wrestles with his old flesh. He, he sees God at the promised land, and, then, and so he, he knows Esau's coming. He needs to deal with Esau. He goes out of his way to meet with Esau, and he sends some representatives, some delegation to go talk to Esau. And these guys come back, and they say, hey, we talked to your brother. He's alive, doing great. He's going to come and meet you with 400 men, which Jacob automatically assumes is Esau's coming to attack him with a small army. And so Jacob panics. He's the deceiver. And so he divides all of his stuff into two camps. That way, whichever camp Jacob attacks, the other one can get away from. And then he sends these droves and these droves of all of these gifts to Esau to kind of pacify, to find favor with Esau, because he knows that Esau can whoop him. He's the older brother. Older brothers always beat younger brothers. Amen? 
bunch of young siblings in here. Okay. And so we see Jacob sets all of this up, and then he grabs his family, his, his wives, his kids, and he sends them over the, the river of the Jabbok to get them just a little bit further away from Esau to protect them. And what we saw was Jacob couldn't sleep. Part of it was probably worry about Esau coming, but the other part we know is the Lord was letting him restless. And so Jacob sends his family on and he stays. He's alone. And I love this part in the story where Jacob is just alone, trying to figure out what to do, worried about Esau attacking him, and then when all of a sudden, pal drives by the Lord. Just tackles him. He spends all night wrestling with this person that slowly over the course of the night he begins to realize is God. And so what we know is God allows Jacob to wrestle. Right? We can, we can agree that Jacob's not a better wrestler than God. God could wipe Jacob out. But he allows Jacob to wrestle. And he allows Jacob to feel like he's better than God at wrestling. And then God just touches his hip socket. And so all Jacob can do is cling to the Lord in the midst of this dark night while he's alone dealing with all of his fears. He refuses to let go, and so God blesses him. God blesses him. And then Jacob leaves with a limp. And he carries this limp for the rest of his life. And when I preach that text, I defined it as a blessing. Because in reality, blessings are not always just good things that happen to us. What a blessing is, is anything that the Lord gives that drives us to be more dependent on him. So what this limp does for Jacob is it takes the power out from underneath him. Now his wits don't matter anymore. His deceptiveness doesn't work this way. He's scared of his brother, and he physically cannot run away from him. God is, is blessing Jacob by making him more dependent on him. And then we get to this passage. So let's read it. Genesis chapter 33, verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in the front, then Leah and her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went out before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll work through this. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we have your word. Thank you that as we gather together, God, we gather to hear your word proclaimed, and it is what shapes us, and it is what builds us. I pray as we walk through this passage in Genesis 33 that you would stir up our hearts for you and grow us in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you remember, when Jacob wrestles God, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Yet what we see in verse 33 is it calls Jacob, Jacob. And so there's this weird thing that, that Moses does where his name is Israel because God named him that. But every time his old flesh kind of comes out, we, get, we call him Jacob. And then when his new flesh comes out, we call him this. Peter does the same thing where, where Jesus names Peter, Peter. But every now and then he doesn't act like Peter. Peter means rock. He's firm, Petros. And so he calls him Simon. It's like if you're living in your old flesh, he calls you Simon. If you're living in your new flesh, Peter. Same kind of idea here with Jacob. 
so he's still has his favor. Did you catch that? Esau's coming to Jacob. Those two camps that he split up, it's like Esau missed him, and he gets to Jacob and his immediate family. And so what Jacob does is he puts his favorite, Rachel and Joseph, in the back of the family. And then he puts Leah and her kids. Then he puts the servants and her kids in this order for a purpose. If Esau attacks, then maybe, just maybe, Rachel and Joseph can get away. And maybe Leah can, but if she can't, you know, it's not, she's not Rachel. However, we do see Jacob show a glimpse of growing up ways. Because this limping patriarch doesn't go back with Rachel. He stands at the front of the family. He takes up the leadership role in being in front of everyone. He bows down seven times, which is him saying, I'm not superior to you, Esau. In fact, Esau, you're superior to me. Jacob humbly does so. Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, and they and their children bowed down. And Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Jacob can't run from Esau. This is a huge fact we need to remember. God made it to where he couldn't run. God has taken that from Jacob to humble Jacob. We see Jacob's response is humility. And so we would expect Esau would come to fight. We would expect, like if you had the blessing stolen, in Esau's perspective, the blessing stolen from you, and the birthright stolen from you, which is going to turn into a large monetary value of things stolen to you from you by your conniving little brother, that when you see him again after 20 years, that's a lot of festering for a wound to do. So we would expect Jacob to bring a war, like bring an army to come and to fight Jacob. And so when Jacob Esau runs to meet Jacob, I'm certain that's what Jacob's feeling. But Esau does the exact opposite. Two brothers, twins. Esau embraces him, tackles him to the ground. Jacob just cannot get away from wrestling, can he? Give some kisses, brotherly kisses, and they weep together after seeing their brother brothers together. Now these two had an extremely tension-related relationship. There's a lot of tension between these two brothers. They think about life completely different. But 20 years of being apart, I just it 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 boggles my mind that Esau doesn't want to just at least one good punch on Jacob. Just one. But instead they hug each other and weep that they get to be together. Reconciliation is a powerful thing. Mercy is a powerful thing. Grace is a powerful thing. We look at the story and I love that after Jacob and Esau are on the ground weeping and holding each other. Esau, you know, wipes the tears out of his eyes. He looks around. He's like, who's all of this that's with you? And Jacob says, these are your nieces and your nephews. They all come and they bow down before Esau. Like, what a powerful and moving picture that we have here. Uncle Esau getting to meet his family that he didn't even know existed up until this point. 
much like Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my presence from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. So please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. So now Esau kind of you know stands up. He's met all of his nieces and, and, and uh, he's, his niece and his nephews. He's you know met all of the family, and now Esau goes, man, you sent me all of these gifts. Why are you sending me all of these presents and all of these gifts in droves and droves? And Jacob is honest. We don't want to walk past this. That's not Jacob's nature up to this point. He is a deceiver. But he replies to Esau honestly. Again, we see this wrestling match with God where God humbles him with this limp that seems to be growing Esau on the truth of the Lord. And so Esau, or Jacob says, man, I sent all that stuff to find favor with you because I'm scared. So please accept my gifts. And I don't know if you caught it. Every time Jacob addresses Esau, he addresses Esau as my Lord. Not as like Lord and Savior, but as like a master or somebody who's superior to him. And every time Esau addresses Jacob, it's as my brother. What a powerful image we're getting. One brother has lied, has cheated his way on the other brother, has gotten rich at the expense of his other brother, and yet he's the one who humbles himself. And then the brother who's offended doesn't just lord it over him. He calls him brother. And in theory, Jacob could have avoided Esau. Edom was south, and Jacob didn't need to go south. He needed to go west. But Jacob also knew that if he was spiritually to be right, if he was to stand with his Lord, then he had to reconcile that relationship. And so Esau tells him, I have enough. Keep, keep what you have. This phrase is telling. You see, part of the reason for Esau's anger on having the blessing and the birthright stolen from him was that he got to inherit all of the wealth. Esau wasn't upset that Jacob got the blessing. He wasn't upset that he got the birthright. Esau was upset when Jacob got the stuff. But what we see now is, is Esau's recognized that he doesn't need God to get those things. Because if you listen to what Jacob says, Jacob says, my family was a gracious blessing from the Lord. And what Esau says is, no, I've just got all this stuff now. I don't really care about that anymore. So Jacob looks at his brother and he's like, keep it because seeing you is like seeing the face of the Lord. Remember, this is Jacob who wrestled God and named the place, I have seen the face of God and lived. See, throughout the Bible, when somebody sees the face of God, it's extremely dangerous. And so Jacob recognizes that he saw God's face and that he wasn't wiped out as a huge blessing from God. And so he elevates that up. It was a dangerous situation for Jacob, and God had grace and mercy on him and left him. And so when he sees Esau, he knows that it's a dangerous situation, that he has an angry older brother who has this small army that's coming after Jacob. But Jacob sees his face, and Esau has grace and mercy on Jacob and doesn't annihilate him. And so he says, listen, I see this that's happening here. Seeing you is like seeing the face of the Lord. Take the things that I've given you. And up to this point, Jacob has not described those things that he sent to them as any way other than a present. But did you catch what Jacob calls it in verse 11? Please accept 
my blessing. It's Jacob recognizing that God was, that Esau was upset because he had the blessing stolen by Jacob, and now Jacob is saying, here, take that back. It's Jacob repenting to his dad. It's Jacob saying, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong. And I love that Jacob would not let Esau go until Esau took the blessing, kind of the same way he would not let go until God blessed him. He just keeps wrestling, doesn't he? And God is urging Esau accept his gift. Verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a a care to me, that if they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. So let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will go, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and said, And Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let let me find favor in your sight, uh, in the sight of my Lord. And Esau returned on that day on his way to Sarah. This is a weird way to end this. Esau's inviting Jacob and his family back with him to Sarah, which is Edom. And God has promised Jacob that he would protect him and that he would bring him back into Canaan, the promised land. And so Jacob does something odd, and it seems like Esau recognizes what Jacob's doing too. Jacob's like, well, I got all these flocks, and I got all these kids, and you know, if I push them too hard, it's not going to be good for them. They're, they're going to die. You brought an army, and army travels a lot different than a shepherd does. So y'all go on ahead, and then we'll kind of catch up later. And Esau tries to send help. He's like, well, let me send some of these people to help you. And Jacob's like, no, there's, there's no need to do any of that. See, what, what probably is happening here is, is Jacob's not wanting to outright tell Esau no. There's still little, he's still Jacob. Because Israel and Edom are two different places. And, and they can't be in the same place. And so Esau probably understands what Jacob's doing here is politely declining his request. Although Jacob doesn't just come out right and say it. probably his old nature and what we'll see is there's still a lot of Jacob left to come out Jacob's going to make a bad decision instead of going into Israel he goes to Succoth and and we're going to see this is a terrible he's supposed to go to Bethel he's supposed to go to Bethel and worship God that's the promise he made but instead he almost gets there he gets to Succoth he he gets 20 miles away and that decision results in some terrible things that happen but for now what we see is, is Esau and Jacob splitting back up again But this time they depart in peace. See, this passage starts out filled with tension. It's filled with fear. It's filled with trepidation. It's filled with Jacob not knowing what Esau's going to do. And now Jacob can't run away, and it ends in peace. How? See, in our flesh, certainly in mine, when when relationships break down, and they certainly do, I get wronged in a relationship when, when I'm, I'm wronged or when I'm 
hurt because relationships have broken down, the first thing that I want to do is I want to make the person who hurt me feel the hurt and the pain that I feel. Whether it's, it's all my fault or not, it doesn't matter. If I'm hurt in those relationships that are broken down, that's what my sinful, that's what my natural flesh wants to do is you hurt me, I'll hurt you. Or sometimes it's just I just don't want to deal with you anymore. You hurt me, our relationship is clearly broken, it's clearly strained, and so what we're going to do is we're just going to separate, and we're not going to have peace, we're just going to pretend like we're, we're okay at a distance, but we're not going to get close together and build any of that back. We're just going to stay far apart, and it's going to be tense, and it's going to be awkward, and it's going to be tensionful, and there's going to be a little bit of fear and trepidation that we might accidentally walk down the same aisle at, all, at Walmart one day. Because that's what our flesh tells us to do. in our flesh we genuinely think that if we cut people off or out of our lives that it solves our problems we genuinely think if i can make them feel the hurt that they felt me then it's just then it's right then the problems go away but the truth is if we're honest with ourselves when that's what we do with our relationships we never mend them we just continually break them Jacob and Esau, what we saw was both brothers had wronged each other. But Jacob comes to Esau in humility, repentant. And Esau comes to Jacob satisfied, but he's not satisfied with the meal. See, the tension for them is resolved because one, Jacob's humility and the offerings, the, the blessing that Jacob wants to, to give back. And Esau has grace and he has mercy and he has forgiveness for Jacob. But it's not because Esau has grace and mercy and forgiveness for the Lord. Esau's recognizing, I have all of the stuff that I want in life and I don't need God to give it to me. So that blessing that you stole from me, all those money, all of those things that I wanted, I don't, like I have that. You can keep your blessing. I've got what I want in life. But he's not upset at Jacob anymore. Esau didn't have to forgive Jacob, but he did. One, probably because he does miss his brother. They're twins. They're telepathic, I think. That's no, I'm just kidding. I don't know. But by and large, he forgives because he has what he wants in life. He used to think Jacob stole it, but now he recognizes, ah, Jacob didn't steal it. This passage begs us to ask several questions of our own lives. first one is, are there broken relationships or is there sin in our life that we need to stop ignoring and forgive? Like, if we claim to be growing in Jesus Christ, then we're not naive enough to think that we are perfectly innocent in all of our relationships and that there's no sin and that there's no wounds that, that we don't need to deal with. gospel is good news and it's good news because it spreads across the chasm of our relationship with God we broke our relationship with God and we it's irreparable by you and I we can't earn our way back to the Lord 
but God comes to us and he reconciles us, us to him if we believe in Jesus. God is far more offended with you and I than we could ever be with somebody else. We have done more wrong to God than you could do with any. God never sinned. And we broke away from the perfect, just reign of God. So when we sin against brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a whole lot of sin on both sides that's going there. So God is far, our relationship with God is far more offended, far further gone than any of our human relationships could be. Yet God reconciles it through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so if we're believers in Jesus Christ, then we say that grace that God has lavished upon us, that mercy that God has poured out upon us, that forgiveness, that's foundational to the gospel forgiveness overflows out of us into our earthly lives as well. So we don't hold those grudges. So we come humbly to one another, that we repent and that we would grow in Jesus. So are there broken relationships or sin in your life that you need to stop ignoring and deal with? Humbly, loving, and intentionally. And the second question this begs us to ask is, are we getting out of life what you want? Or what do you want to get out of life? Esau forgives Jacob because in the end, Esau got what he wanted. And he didn't need God or so he thought to get it. Esau's happy with a passing acknowledgement of, yes, yes, God is the big man upstairs. And the big guy upstairs and I, we are all right. Now let's move on to something deeper and something better. Let's get to what's important. Those are the people I, that, that my heart breaks for, for people who think that way. Because you look at, at the lives of people who think that way and they get everything that they want to out of life, yet you and I and the gospel in Jesus know that all of those things, all of that stuff, all of the, the material, the, the world, all of the things that you strive to get, doesn't fill the God-sized hole in your heart. It can numb it, certainly. It can numb it and not even feel it. But it never fills that void. And so live lives thinking that they're complete. Live lives thinking that they're full when deep, deep down is it out that you want out of life? Are your desires for what you want out of your life things that are going to drive you to the Lord or are they things that are going to drive you away from God? See, what the Bible teaches is that relationships are not mended by cutting them off or seeking vengeance. Relationships are mended by grace and by mercy and by when we look at the gospel of Jesus, we can recognize that if we are Christians, this is fundamental to our identity. If we believe that we're Christians, if we say the gospel has saved me, that Jesus has saved me, and that is good news, it's good news because our relationship with God has been reconciled, not by our doing, but by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for our sins, imputing to us his righteousness. And so if that's our relationship with God, then what it means is God didn't cut us off and say, I'm done with you, get away from me. God didn't say, I'm going to get even with you. You hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you. 
God didn't seek vengeance against us just to press us and beat us into submission to him. No. The gospel's good news because God showed grace and mercy to us when we absolutely deserve justice and wrath. And it's good news because our relationship with God was tension-filled that when we're saved by Jesus Christ, there's no more fear. Deep down, we all know that we are sinners and that we stand before a holy and sinless God as rebels who deserve punishment. But Jesus comes. And he comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus comes and he takes us out of this broken relationship with God and he makes us right with God. He comes offering forgiveness. He comes offering grace. He comes offering mercy. Now it's our, we repent and we turn to Jesus in faith and we trust in the Lord and the Lord promises to save us. But much like Jacob, this repentance is more than just a passing acknowledgement like, I'm sorry, I should have done better, I'll try better next Repentance is so much more than that. It's a change of lifestyle. It's making right the wrong. Here's what I believe. For for us today in this very room, what God is doing is he, he might be calling you to make that relationship with God right. Not by anything that you can do, but by turning to Jesus in faith and repenting of your sins. And if that's you, stop listening and pray to the Lord now. For some of us here in in this room, I think what God is doing is he is calling you to look at your life in light of the gospel. If you're already a believer, then what God has called you to do is to be a gospel Christian, which means we seek out others in grace and in mercy and in forgiveness, and we reconcile things that need to be reconciled, and we repent where we need to repent, and we grow in the Lord together. And so sometimes that means praying to God and turning over relationships to Him that you can't mend anymore. Other times it means seeking out. If there's somebody who's wronged you or you've wronged them, seeking that person out and repenting to them. Other times it may be something different. But if you're a Christian saved by the gospel, the gospel that says you broke the relationship with God, but Jesus brought you back into a right standing with God by bearing your sin and your shame on the cross, then there is no relationship in your life that is irreparable. It doesn't mean that your relationship's going to end like yours and Jacob's did, or Esau and, and, and Jacob did, wrestling on the ground, just crying and weeping. It may be a mutual understanding of, of the repentance and the separation. But what gospel do we show a lost and dying world if we claim that we are saved by God, saved to God, yet we blame other people for all the wrongs and we refuse to repair anything that's ever been done? Some of us here, the gospel is pressing for you to, to live for something something so much more substantial than what this material world can give you. A life of contentment without the Lord is actually a life of discontentment. You can fake it, and you can numb it with all sorts of things, sex, alcohol, other things that the world throws us, entertainment. 
as you finish, we always joke, we can't you know, out-entertain Netflix. Netflix is, what, $5 a month? We don't have that. We could have a million-dollar budget. We're not going to out-entertain Netflix. What we have to offer the world is not something that's entertaining. What we have to offer the world is something that is needed, the gospel of Jesus. Because in the end, and deep in your heart and your soul, you know that if you're content with the world, James says it's enmity, it's, it's enemies with God because you're empty and you can't fill that void that only he can fill. Grace, mercy, and forgiveness are how relationships are built. Grace, mercy, and forgiveness is how we are saved. And if we are saved, that salvation that Jesus lavishes on us flows into the rest of our lives as well. How will you respond this morning to God? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we can look at your word and we can recognize that there is no relationship in our lives that is too far gone, that you've come further than any of us could have come to reconcile us to you. And that by your grace and by your mercy and by your forgiveness, God, people who have done nothing to earn that grace, nothing to deserve that mercy, nothing to do merit that forgiveness, that you still lavish it on us. I pray that you would move our hearts and move our souls to glorify you and to worship you. God, I pray that you'd help us to be brave. It's easy to sit here and to sing songs and to hear the word proclaimed and to nod into agreement, and it's difficult to go out and to live these things in reality. Give us the courage to repent during these reconciliation where we need to seek reconciliation. God, to live lives that are content in you, which means, God, we have to be discontent with much of the world. Help us to grow in Jesus this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Russell's going to come up and lead us in a song.